Welcome to the One Last Sketch Podcast. I'm Michael. I'm Marie. And I'm Corey. And today we're also doing something different. We, we are doing an in-depth study of one short story. What? So, in this case, if you haven't read it already, go do whatever you need to do to find Ray Bradbury's The Belt. It is extremely easy to find. Read that, then come back. It'll take you like ten minutes. So, The Velt was first published in 1950. It was collected, it was the first short story in the collection, The Illustrated Man, which came out whatever year it came out. We have a copy, we can check. The book was published in 1951. Yeah, it's probably being reprinted in just about every best of collection ever. It's found its way into schools. I would hazard to say that this is Ray Bradbury's if not best-known story, one of the three best-known short stories yeah. by him. Oh, it's pretty ubiquitous. Yep. I think Marie first encountered it in school. Grade 7. I studied it twice in school, actually. We studied it in grade 7, and then we studied it again in high school. And in high school, I encountered the terrible part of movie that is the belt that is egregious and <laughs> replaces wonderful holographic things with a giant IMAX screen. In a room. Ah, I haven't terrible. seen this. It sounds awful. Just awful. It sounds really awful. I'm supposed to say no more about it. <laughs> it's, it's funny how you guys are making talking about how ubiquitous it is, because I hadn't heard of this piece until you two told me about it, and I'm glad you did, because the book it's in is phenomenal as well. To be fair, you haven't really read a whole lot of Ray Bradbury. Much to my regret, I'm finding, yes. Yeah. Which is also really surprising, because he was not only extremely pro- prolific, but extremely well-regarded. I believe at the time that he was writing this short story, he was putting out one short story a week. That's pretty good. Yeah, he talks about that in an essay, I forget which one, in his book Zen and the Art of Writing, which is less a book on how to write and more reflections on the craft of writing. And he talks about how he'd do a draft every day and send it out Friday. And that's basically what he had to do to eat at the time. So... I do. This is one of my favorite Ray Bradbury stories. It is, I think, easily my most favorite Ray Bradbury story. I would not say it is necessarily the best Ray Bradbury story, but it's the one I like the most. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I don't know that I would say it was among the best in the collection, but we're talking a collection that had no bad pieces, so that's kind of hard, an unfair judgment. Yeah, for those of you who haven't read The Illustrated Man, there are no bad short stories in it. Mm-hmm. It is one of the strongest short story collections I've ever read. Mm-hmm. Distinctly. So, for our first topic, I would like to talk about placing the genre of this story. Since it does begin as a science fiction story, but it doesn't necessarily end that way. Kind of goes into a horror territory. Yeah, science fiction horror. I mean, it is set up that the house is a mechanical, technological contraption. Plus, I was quite surprised that the Happy Life home only cost $30,000. But that's 1950s. I say, we're talking 1950 money. That's that's a lot. So we do begin with these technological innovations. And for a science fiction writer, Ray Bradbury usually explored the bad side of technological development as opposed to the positive parts, especially in this story. But we start off, it seems to be a fairly straightforward science fiction story, but 
By the end, when the house is actualizing the children's fantasies into not just a screen with photo-perfect lions on it, but actual lions, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it goes into territory of horror or fantasy, surrealism. Sorry, was it ever a screen? Because I read it as basically a holodeck right from the beginning. Yeah, no, I always read it as a holodeck as well. And the only reason I, that the screen thing might be coming up is just because that terrible thing that we weren't supposed no, to talk about. No, it's, it's actually described as crystalline screens. Oh, uh, yeah. This giant oh. room. I know that, down. but I've always imagined that the crystalline screens just projected. I mean, the thing that I find with Ray Bradbury and his descriptions in any of his works is that he's pretty minimalist and kind of leaves it up to to you to fill in the blanks. And I, I think in this case, Bookcorn and I just filled in the blank as, oh, it's just holograms, because it just makes more it, sense anyway. Yeah, it helps that the stories don't become dated that way. Yeah. In a way that stories from the 40s and 50s in science fiction often do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are described as smoke and mirrors, essentially. They're supposed to mm-hmm. be if not crystalline screens, at least a hologram. Yeah. But we start getting dropped hints that things are worse or more than they seem, starting with George the father finding that wallet. His bloody wallet. His bloody wallet with saliva all over it, and the bloody scarf, which are the first indications that maybe what's happening in that room is these things become a reality as opposed to a virtual simulation. It's not really the first indication that something is wrong, because from the very beginning yeah, of no. the setup, <laughs> the whole setup of this family, you just think, what? Who would think that is a good idea? Who? Mm-hmm. I should say that not that something is wrong, but that something is happening that is outside of how we understand reality to work. Mm-hmm. Yes. That that this is getting into horror territory. Number two, horrible children. Horrible children, a trope that is used in horror fairly often. Yeah, it it, it did get into the whole kind of, I don't want to say demonic children, because there's nothing supernatural about them, but like it definitely got into that territory of the children want the parents dead. It's never flat out stated, obviously. But it's really, really heavily handed, hinted at. They are terrible parents. They're terrible parents. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, that's the funny thing, is at the end I don't feel a whole lot of sympathy for them. Not only are they did they set up this world where they are completely estranged from their children who then don't love them because all their love has been tran- transferred onto the house, they then also can't withstand ten minutes of crying break down, allow the kids to get back into the room where they have this strange power that they have, that the parents at this point are suspecting, and then they both die because they're eaten by lions. Well, I was going to say, I also found that um, despite how much dialogue there is in the story and despite how much information comes from the parents, I actually found them both to be very flat characters. Everyone's a pretty flat character in this story, to be honest. True, okay, true, yes, <laughs> but yeah. like... And I, I think that's actually intentional, though. Like, I think it fits in with the story of we're talking about these weak parents. I think part of the reason they're weak is because they're so generic individuals to actually be a cliche. Like, mm-hmm. they're flat characters because they're flat people. Yes, I should also point out that the kids are named Wendy and Peter. Yes. Which yeah. is a pretty clear allusion to a certain other story we all know. Which yes. is also kind of creepy if you take the time to read into it. 
Yes, we're not studying that one now, however. No. But there you go. If I could just maybe toss out a topic idea then. Um, one thing I found in the story, I, I found it, I would argue it's probably more relevant now than when it was written, because you get this whole thing about, oh, these kids love this technological marvel more than their parents, and they spend more time with that than their own family, and this has become their life, and I mean, it's like, you can turn on the news, and chances are you're going to hear somebody bitching about Facebook the same way. So I, I do think there is definitely the parallel between, if not the reality of the situation, at least the perception of the situation as we encounter it today. It's not the first time that this would be something from Ray Bradbury. I think this is a kind of famous anecdote now of him walking down the street one day, post-writing Fahrenheit 451, and then running across a couple who are walking a dog, and one's on a cell phone, and one's listening to, I think at the time, a Walkman. And he's sort of stopped with the chilled dread spreading over him, realizing that what he described in the beginning of Fahrenheit 451 had happened. So, you know, he's kind of been prophetic before. I wouldn't be surprised if he did it again. There's also the fact that he did not allow his books to be released as e-books yeah. yes. before his death. Yes. <laughs> well, again, just, I, I think to continue with my point a little further, I mean, in this case to use the Facebook analogy, instead of, you know, a group of friends online telling these kids, okay, this is what you should think, this is how you should act, screw your parents, the same thing effectively happens, but it happens, it's driven by the technology of the house, not by a peer group. And in isolation. And in isolation, yeah. And I, I, that's probably an important point, too, and that is an important distinction. There's a funny bit with all this where the character David McLean, which is a great name. Um, the psychologist. The psychologist. Um, I imagined him as looking like Fraser Crane. I also imagined him as being like the worst qualified, least qualified psychologist ever, but... Well, it's, it's funny, because he said he makes the statement that it, I hate these rooms, because if your children are the least little bit neurotic, um, they can come out, and neurotic, psychologically speaking, tends to be more on the sort of depressive, an- anxious side. Just as a fun fact. The kids uh, are not innately, I think, neurotic. They've been made neurotic. So I'd wonder if we can actually blame them that much for their actions. I'm not going to give a definitive yes or no. Not to continue beating a dead metaphor here, but there is kind of that conflict seen in a lot of social media of how, like I said, you get ideas coming from it. So I I can't help but wonder, it's like, okay, yeah, the parents are kind of neglecting the children, and the children are forming an attachment to something else. But how much of that is that when the children saw where their own minds could go, that kind of opened it up for them to free themselves a little bit. Effectively, they freed themselves up to become neurotic. I feel like this is less that it's about they discovered this power than it is about they just transferred all their love and felt nothing towards their parents and then felt a definite, if when the house was killed, then there was a definite strong reaction of denial and anger and screaming fits because that was their actual parents that had just been murdered to them. So Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Okay. I think this dovetails perfectly into the next point that I want to bring up. Okay. <laughs> which is the ambiguity of the house's relationship with the children. Mm-hmm. Like, did the house just make the children's fantasies come true independent of itself, or did it purposely take over the parents' role ah. in the children's lives so that it could turn them again, turn against the parents if they threaten the house. I actually never read it as an intentional part on the house. I always read the house as just a machine that did what was required of it and it was an unintentional 
consequences. Yeah, I think I'm kind of grafting having seen 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> yeah. How like plots. How like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it could act, in a weird way, I think it's one of those things that could be both. Mm-hmm. The house may not have intentionally tried to do that, but the house also responds to the desires of its users. So as these fantasies become more part of the kids' lives, it becomes more their desire to continue having them. So anything that threatens them becomes an obstacle, so they want to continue having the fantasies even more strongly. And that just kind of feeds into the loop of the house. I feel like we're in some ways placing too much on the room itself. Because I don't think it's just the room. The room's where the kids can can affect a change most strongly, and I think that's why they use it at the end. But I think it's the whole house that they are attached to it. Because they go, they, what were they doing? They were in New York, like, jetting around and doing No, things. they wanted to go to New York. Oh, they wanted to go to New York. And they took the rocket. But the parents yeah. said no. Yes. And that was what tipped off this final rebellion on the part of the children yes. with constructing the belt in the playroom. Yeah, the, it was... I almost sort of read it as... They still go out and do things. Like, the house is still a parent, and you do occasionally leave your parent to go and wander off and do whatever else it is you want to do. But the thing about the house is that it's not able to say no to any requests unless you tell it to say, unless you tell it no at that particular time. So they're used to instant gratification, and they also are used to that when they go out and do whatever they do. So to them, the, their caregiver is something that always gratifies their desires. And I feel like by having these unattached other beings say no just is in complete opposition to what they've been brought up believing as what they should get, and that is why I think they become so hostile. And I wonder if it's just feeling hostility and then being in the room, the room picking up this hostile sense, then created the fantasy, and that was a snowball effect between the two going on. I also think that that because the house was acting in the parental role, they would have achieved a greater attachment with the children and that's why it would respond to their commands and kill off the parents who are supposedly controlling the house who bought the house. Oh, I see. Because at the end, they could, the parents couldn't stop the room or couldn't control yeah. the room. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, here, just to, um, just to throw a complete monkey wrench into the conversation, did anybody else get the, the perception that one way of reading this is that the parents were actually dead from the beginning, and that this whole thing was just the kids playing up this brutal massacre over and over again. No. No, that never occurred to me, Corey. Well, no, just because as I'm reading it, I, I, I don't know if it's the, the interpretation I agree with, but it's certainly one I could see. It talks about how, you know, they keep finding the bloody wallet, they keep finding the bloody scarf, and these are seen several times in what's a fairly short piece. And then there's like, oh, you know, the gruesome murder at the end, and there's always the references to the lions are killing something, but he can't quite make it out. I, I almost re- I read it, or I could see it being read as they've been dead for a while, and for whatever reason, this murder is being reenacted over and over again. I think that interpretation works, except for the psychologist. Yeah, because who was unless the house could then project? Because it's not it's not as if it was an entirely self-contained system within the story then it could be interpreted that way. But because you have someone coming in from outside, yeah. I think it is directly related. Even though there is the question of where where did the bloody scarf come from or the wallet? Like, didn't he have yeah. the I wallet with him? And then he gets murdered again and again. 
Where did the bit when where did the bodies go at the end though is also a question well, because they're just taken somewhere into the holographic holographic space. Well, you mentioned the psychologist not fitting in with that. I actually found him kind of creepy at the end. Like, um, l- let me just find like he says something to the kids about oh, were you ready to go or something like that? And to Idaho or Indiana, one of those states. He's the lie. No, he doesn't say anything, but. Maybe not creepy then, but continuing with the idea I, sh- I um, tossed out there, presumably if the parents are already dead and the kids have killed them multiple times now, couldn't they just kill him as well? I always did wonder, even if whether or not the parents have been killed multiple times, etc., what was going to happen next. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's, it, the ending is fairly ambiguous because it's just her saying, mm-hmm. let's have some tea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would uh, hope there, that the psychologist would have the intelligence to figure out something as strongly awry. But it's also possible that the killing could continue for a little while. I don't think it could permanently continue. Someone will well, figure something out. Again, I think we're getting a little too metatextual, though. <laughs> well, you started us on this. You started it with Mr. Maybe they've been dead the whole time. Okay, so, fair enough. To, to bring us into a more solid story space. Yay. There is one point where it said that the house picks up on the telepathic emanations of the family within it, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of who the member is. I'm wondering if the house could also send them. Yeah, so what if as it, if, as it was being turned off, it could make the children go further into their fits of giant temper tantrum, basically. Yeah, yeah and <laughs> if it, it could make the parents become such flat people who become alienated from their children mm-hmm. on purpose. Okay, that gets into some creepy territory then. Yeah. And that's what's wonderful about Bradbury's writing, is that with his sort of clean vagueness, I'd say, you get free to kind of wonder all these things, which is great. (laughs) I was going to say, that's the thing about the stories and um, the collection in general, is for the most part, there's a lot more than meets the eye at face value for a lot of them, and this is a good example, I think. Whew! At any point, reading the beginning of the story, thought that this house sounded like a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Especially the nursery. It's like, let's install this thing. I think a holodeck, having a holodeck would be great. But it needs, as many episodes of Star Trek show, it needs kind of safety parameters. <laughs> Just a few, yeah. No, I, I, I've got to agree with you about thinking it's a bad idea, though, because I remember there's one part, the mother, whose name escapes me, um, even says, it's like, oh, well, let's have a vacation, you know, let's shut down the house, and I'll actually cook and clean for you again. Which, okay, product of its time, so ignoring the horrible sexism there, it's like, why did you do this in the first place? Because you seem very distraught by the whole thing. Yeah. It applies to both of them, though, because she comments about George, that Lydia's the name of the wife, mm-hmm. George is the husband, she says... Well, you're smoking more, and you're having more and more trouble sleeping, and you drink more, because you have nothing to do. There's literally a shoe tire. Yes. In this special house. I mean, it's it's funny that they mentioned the, the worries about the children becoming neurotic, but they're pretty neurotic themselves, and this sort of unconscious anxiety they have about their, their lives are meaningless because the house does everything, and having no action leaves you as a nothing shell. I think that's true. I also think that they're both pretty flat, and I'm going to be a jerk here, I think they're both pretty pathetic people to begin with, to be honest. 
Well, I yes, because you'd think they would, with all that le- leisure time, they'd find something to do with it. Yeah. Like, read a book! <laughs> yeah. that, exactly. Get some Ray Bradbury collection. Yeah, I mean, that, exactly. That's a good part of it. I think another good part of it, too, that shows so pathetic there, is that they would want this in the first place. Like, mm-hmm. George, I think at one point, makes a point. At some point in the story, he he goes out of his way to say, it's like, oh, well, you know, this wasn't cheap, and I had to work hard to pay for this house, and something like that. It's like, well, you could have done something more meaningful with that money. <laughs> like, It's just, I, I think you have to be a flat sort of person, a fairly shallow kind of person, to want this house in the first place, is kind of, I think, key on this, because we're talking about how they're flattened characters, and a part of that is, I think, the effect of living in that house, but I think they had to start in that sort of space. What I want to know is how long they've had the house for. Or, like, is this something that happened in a couple of months, or did it take years? It must have been quite a while, because I think the kids are ten mm. in the story, and they've been using this nursery room for, it must have been over a year. Must have been, because they used to do, like... that kind of attachment to it. Because they used to do, like, sort of Disney adventure stuff in the hall, in the Yeah, there's one part room. the father's even yelling at it to bring up something a little more. Aladdin's lamp. He wanted to see Aladdin. Yeah. <laughs> and then... Peter says, no, there was no belt there. What he asked him about it, they go in and say, it's fantasy land all over again. That should have been a clue. Especially because it seems that the house might have been sending some kind of warning by not covering itself up for the parents. Yeah, I'm kidding. That is interesting (laughs) that it didn't um, do anything. But again, I think the house, I tend to go in the the route, that the house isn't sentient probably isn't sending out psychic emanations. Probably is just kind of blindly reacting because it is a machine, and that's why it's left on because it has no reason to change. And it could be even sort of a programming thing where having had the same image played so much, it is kind of assuming that that's the only image that's wanted. I think that's also brought up as a possibility in the story itself. Yeah. I think just some broader themes that are fairly obvious, too. Like, we talked about, you know, the dependence on the house and what kind of people would want this. And, I mean, again, going with Bradbury's propheticness, this is becoming more and more true every day. Yeah, you you do see... I I do hear a lot of complaints about the normal social isolation that's going on in pediatric populations because of... Things like Facebook, for example. Mm-hmm. Things like having cell phones and not... Uh, Where social media actually cuts us off from people. Yes. Yeah, we're, we're too busy using social media to socialize. Which is the stereotypical image of a bunch of teenagers going out for dinner, sitting around a table, and then they're all texting. <laughs> I don't want to go to slamming teenagers for this, because, okay, yes, the stereotype is that they're the worst for it. Maybe that's the reality, I don't know. But everyone does this. Like, I go for walks at lunch downtown, and I'll see people in their 30s and 40s and 50s doing this. Like, the people who are supposedly above this kind of thing, who are mature enough to avoid it, are starting to do it. And I think the way you can tie that back into the story is we talked about the dad demanding Aladdin's lamp. Well, he's kind of trying to use it as well. It's just not reacting the way he thinks necessarily, but he's still trying to get into the groove of it. Despite George and Lydia being such terrible people, I did not have the adverse reaction that I did when Wendy and Peter first showed up. Yes, that is like, true. The, the minute they entered the scene, I hated these kids. It's true. They are just awful, awful people. 
That's really all I can say about them. I don't know that I'd say I hated them. I kind of got a bit of a creepy vibe. I thought they were a little bit spoiled, entitled, and they were brats for sure, but I, I can see, I can definitely see why you would. It's, it's really what, you, what you'd fear if one ever wanted to be a parent, to have that be the progeny. <laughs> Thus our moral of the Velt. Don't spoil your children! Yes, make them play with sticks in the backyard. <laughs> and sticks are awesome. No, I, I think I, I do think that would be doing the story a bit of a disservice to say that the model a the bit mo- a bit <laughs> just a bit of a disservice to say that the moral was that simplistic. Yeah. <laughs> what I find that um, sort of brings this story away from the sort of how we're pulling into social media themes because that's our world is that mm-hmm. instead of going into something where you're isolated yet weirdly connected in a different way. This is a world where, for these kids, their only real connection is to a machine. And it's not, and they're completely socially isolated from everything else, having only their own selfish desires. Basically, they're, they're, if you want to get sort of more psychological, you could say that their ego is so undeveloped that they can't, that any, anything that thwarts their id desires sends them into a rage because they are completely immature and, and unable to mature because they have no, sort of social example to grow after. Which is kind of different from the whole sort of Facebook thing that we're with, because you do kind of connect with other people. This is just an entirely artificial world for them. Okay. It is a house that does purposefully in its function isolate mm-hmm. you from the outside world because you don't have to go grocery shopping. There's no ketchup. The house says sorry and produces some ketchup. <laughs> Funny fun fact about the about a structure in this story to bring it back to something else is it kind of follows a very traditional storytelling thing in which there's um, a male protagonist, a female protagonist, a male antagonist, a female antagonist, and a fifth guy, fifth business is hanging around as being all your characters in this story. The house is also arguably a character. I'm going to say the house is an environment. I would argue that it's just a character, but it's me. Yeah. Aristotle would be so proud of this story. It is amazing how layered this story is for something so incredibly short. Well, it's something that on the surface is very simple. Yeah. Mm. And, and for characters that are apparently non-characters. The, the, the Ray, Ray Bradbury is kind of famous for that, though. Yeah. He packs a lot of punch into the least amount of words. Right. Now, there is another sentient house. Sentient. There is another sentient house that appears in a Ray Bradbury story called There Will Come Soft Rains. Yes. Which is also suitably creepy, even though in this case the only character is the sentient house. I don't remember where I've read that one, but I have read that one. And this particular kind of house shows up in his other stories, too. I know there's... I think it's um, in the Illustrated Man, the story of the Rocket Man. They have, like, devices that they can sit on, and they're rocked and soothed, and it's, like, the same kind of house... Thing is around, so mm-hmm. it, it's, it's a common background. Well, and another story in the Illustrated Man as well that takes the theme a little further is the story of the city, um, where yes. <laughs> which creepy as hell, highly recommended. Um, he takes the idea, except instead of a sentient house, it's a sentient city, and it like commits very grisly, brutal murders. It's really messed up, but a lot of fun to read. Mm-hmm. The other story, which is in the Illustrated Man that relates to this one. Is Zero Hour. Which, which one's that? also has creepy children. Which one was that again? That's the one where they're 
the children of being recruited <gasps> oh, dimensional beings. Yes, yes, for the invasion. Yeah, I, it was a well-written story, but I've, I've encountered similar plots in other science fiction from kind of this era, about the 50s, everyone's worried about communist invasion. And I, I, I've come across a couple that were just painful, and the problem I have with that plot is even when it's done well, like in Zero Hour, it still brings up the memory of all those painfully done versions. Gosh, all those bad writers tarring <laughs> our experience of Ray Bradbury. Dang! <laughs> Why do they keep writing that direct? <laughs> well, and I mean... It's funny because not everything Ray Bradbury wrote is, you know, gold. He wrote a lot of things, which meant he also had wrote some things that were really not that great. I think he'll be the first to admit that, that well, would have been were he still alive. <laughs> he did have a very good batting average yeah. for somebody that prolific. What? Like, a sports metaphor? A... Shh. <laughs> <laughs> I have a collection from the library right now which has 100 of Bradbury's best stories, mm-hmm. which he, he helped select them. So That's 100 short stories, which I can't... Even thinking about doing that in a lifetime... Is a lot. My mind. But yeah. this is just a... The best 100. Yep. <laughs> the best 100 of how... God knows how many stories that he had published. Yeah. And I'd like to point out, I think Ray Bradbury would approve of you getting it from the library because he very much liked libraries and defended them quite adamantly in his lifetime. Yes. So, so. yeah, no, that's pretty That's pretty strong juicing we did on a pretty short story, so... Yeah. Ooh, yay, literary analysis. All right, so you want to start a closeout, Michael? In closing, The Illustrated Man starts with a story titled Velt. It is a great story. The rest of the book is also amazing. Pick it up. And even if you listen to this podcast without actually going and reading the story... You can still go and read on you. <laughs> you can still go and read the story that we have just talked about and entirely spoiled, and you will still find it a very, very enjoyable read. Thank you for listening to the One Last Sketch podcast. We have no idea what we're going to do next time or who the guests will be. Oh, I you'll can... know when it appears. I can foreshadow something, Michael. I'll yeah. probably be done the Book of the New Sun in about a week or two. <laughs> You may want to start plotting out how we're going to do that. <laughs> that one you may want to actually have a discussion list for. You need Look a discussion Look forward to a very long podcast about the book of the new set sometime in the near future. Sometime in 2014. <laughs> yes. I huh? hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. As much as we enjoyed talking. Good day or good night. Was it going with this one? Give me one second. I had a great idea. Idea, I swear. Um, damn it! Sorry, I had it. Give me a sec. What is with us tonight? I had a point, and then I wrote something down, and I forgot it. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing really well tonight for that. I think the ketchup bottle is symbolic of the blood that is about to be spilt because we're going to make my editing job so hard. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> I think pointing out that we're making your editing job harder also made your editing job harder. Just saying. <laughs>